Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. This week, the Trump administration made the controversial decision to phase out the program known as DACA, which prevents the deportation of unauthorized immigrants brought to the United States as children. That move was kicked off by a threat of litigation by states that wanted to see the program go, and has now resulted in litigation by a different set of states that want it to stay in place. We'll be joined later in the show by senior immigration reporter Alyssa Wickham to take us through all the ins and outs of the DACA debate. And stick around to the end of the show when we talk classic literature, movie deal sabotage, and a $13 million jury verdict. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. And Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. So what's new today, guys? Well, I would be remiss if we didn't start uh, with the latest update from our old friend, Martin Shkreli. Oh, oh. what's he up to now? <laughs> Marty! <laughs> well, on the periphery of the stories, when we talked about Shkreli, is his acquisition of this uh, unreleased Wu-Tang album. Right, with the with the obscure clause that only Bill Murray can steal it. Yeah, well, yeah. He, we, we've kind of reached the nadir of this whole internet, uh, you know, punchable guy thing uh, in that he is now selling it on eBay. Because uh, yeah. for... Well, that tracks with his other behavior. Sure. I guess he could be selling it on Craigslist. That would be lower. Yeah. <laughs> that would be so Selling it on Backpage. It could be, you know, it could keep getting worse. Uh, yeah, no, he's opened it up. Uh, I think it's, because what did he buy it for? It was like $2 million or I something? I think so, yeah. Yeah, well, the bids are about up to a million, so he at least stands to lose some money if it, uh, if it holds now. He's not actually committed <laughs> to... Falling through the sale, right? He could just yeah. Decide well, not that's to do what, this. that's what's been. He's got this sort of Damocles hanger where he's like also in in true Shkreli fashion. He's also threatened to uh, destroy it if he's not uh, satisfied oh, with uh, with uh, great certain bids that he acquires. Great. So we should all just stop paying attention to him. Yeah, like on the Everyone podcast, just for example. Away. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whose idea was this anyway. Oh, I I started it anyway. Right. Well, it's hard not to pay attention when he goes on eBay and like. I think I saw a picture of this where he's like flashing the album and it's like clearly him holding it, it up. It looked in like the a picture. ransom picture. I'm going to listen yeah, to yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go listen to Liquid Swords. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what actual news do we want to talk about today, Bill? Uh, so, our very own Andrew Strickler, one of our legal industry reporters, had a interesting scoop this week that Big Law Powerhouse Hunt and Williams reached a settlement pretty quietly last month to pay $34 million to um, to exit a lawsuit over allegations that it aided in the um, the $7 billion Ponzi scheme perpetrated by Robert Allen Stanford, if you if you remember that one. It was well, a while ago. That was the yeah. one that like rivaled um, Bernie Madoff, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about who the guy was sure. exactly. So yeah. as you mentioned, it was sort of overshadowed. It came out, it was like news broke of it six months after Madoff. So, and it was right in the middle of the financial crisis and the... Uh, the recession. So he's the deep impact to Bernie Madoff's Armageddon. Uh, great, great. Yes, the I'm, little big league to his rookie of the year. Oh, we could do this all day. Yeah, <laughs> the <laughs> illusionist to his prestige. Wow. Okay, go ahead, go ahead, Bill. Sorry. Wow. Anyway, Con Air and the Rock. No, eh, not quite. Okay. But, okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, even though it was sort of overshadowed and grouped in with Madoff's thing. And, and you know, you, you remember Madoff a little bit more. Stanford's fraud was no joke. That it, it, You know, he, he defrauded 30,000 investors uh, in 100 countries. It lasted for two decades. And, you know, Bernie Madoff's was $64 billion, and this was seven. So it was obviously smaller, but this had, you know, a higher number of victims. It was, it was bigger in certain ways. So Stanford was discovered in 2009. He was convicted in 2012, and he's currently serving a 110-year so, so how did Hunt and Williams get involved in this 
So, um, you know, in any sort of scheme like this, there's going to be lawyers involved. There's going to be big law firms involved. The court-appointed receiver who's there to recover money for victims in something like this claims that an ex-hunting partner named Carlos Lumier, I believe, was a key facilitator for Stanford that he, you know, he helped manipulate government officials. He he helped insulate Stanford from regulatory scrutiny, all sorts of things to help him sort of push this forward, that he, that he aided and abetted it. Mm-hmm. Lumier is not a party to this suit that we're talking about today, but his former law firms, namely Hunton and Greenberg Traurig, mm-hmm. uh, were named as defendants in the case. The idea being that that the receiver is going to attempt to recover money from them that is owed to the victims. Lumier was at Hunt and Williams from 2001 onward and before that, uh, back to 1988 when the Stanford scheme is alleged to have started. Yeah, it's a he long was at Greenberg Traurig. Yeah. So, yeah. And you already said uh, we're dealing with a $34 million settlement here, which obviously is a lot of money on its face. But can you contextualize that for us I yeah. mean, in terms of like how big that is in terms of white-collar penalties we've seen yeah, in this area? It's, it's really big both in the context of the Stanford case itself and also in terms of penalties against a law firm in a case like this. Okay. So um, to put it in context, $407 million has been recovered for the victims of the Stanford thing as of – April, I believe. Um, And so 34 million is a pretty big chunk coming from one group. And it's apparently one of the largest settlements to date out of the whole Stanford debacle, according to an expert that Andrew spoke to for his story. It's right in line with a $35 million settlement that Chadbourne and Park reached in a separate case dealing with another lawyer that was at Chadbourne and worked on Stanford-related things. So it's, you know, it's... This is sort of the going rate to get yourself out of some Stanford trouble. Yeah, But it's a Um, lot bigger than the going rate to get yourself out of just malpractice, Exactly. That was an interesting anecdote out of Andrew's story that all the normal caveats that, you know, some of these numbers aren't exactly, uh, you know, are hard to, to pin down. But the American Bar Association released a report that said only... 0.1% 0.1% of all payouts in malpractice suits brought against law firms between 2011 and 2015 top $2 million. So this, so this is, is in really the very, big. very, very up, upper crust of, of what these kind of cases yield. So where does this leave us with all of this? Uh, we, right here in this room, we're, we're fine, guys. Well, I'm glad to know <laughs> that. Yeah. But Greenberg, according to that, – that was sort of the, the interesting take from Andrew's story, that Greenberg is – you know can't be thrilled about this, that mm-hmm. – you know. Lumiere worked there for longer than he worked at Hunton, so one would argue that that they probably have a little bit more exposure to begin with in this situation. Andrew talked to a fraud recovery expert, someone who works in on cases like this, who said that it, it appears to be the receiver, quote, isolating a larger defendant and leaving Greenberg Traurig all by themselves. It also provides protections for Lumiere himself that, you know, another expert who Andrew spoke to who worked on another Stanford case that there was against a law firm, that guy said that that was also bad news for, for Greenberg because, you know, it shows that it would allow Lumiere to to help the receiver build the case against Greenberg, that, you know, that he's sort of more insulated now to, to lend a helping hand. And obviously he knows a lot about the facts of this case. So if he's empowered to to talk to the guy who's bringing the case against Greenberg, it's not good for the firm. Yeah, we'll be watching that to see what happens and, with Greenberg. Yeah, you get the yeah. Greenberg partners reaching for the Pepto-Bismol here. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for bringing that. Yeah. Back. So, Alex, I know you want to talk about a trial that's kicking off. What do you have to bring to us today? Yeah, I've got one that I think will be interesting to a lot of people, but will at the very least be interesting 
to the people in this room because, Bill, you are from New Jersey. And color me shocked that there is a corruption <laughs> story in my in the proud state, in the proud garden state. And Amber, you currently live in New Jersey. I, I do, and I have a lot of transplant Jersey pride there. And I am from the suburbs of Chicago, which makes me an authority on corrupt politicians, <laughs> or in this case, allegedly corrupt politicians. So we've got uh, an interesting case started this week. A sitting U.S. senator uh, is facing felony charges in New Jersey federal court. Uh, we're dealing with Democrat Robert Menendez, who, uh, like I say, the trial started this week, and he is accused of accepting bribes and gifts to um, sort of influence policy on behalf of uh, this Florida doctor that yeah. he was uh, friends with. So what exactly is he accused of here? I know you said getting gifts, but but talk us through what exactly he's accused of. Yeah, so at issue here is this period of about seven years when Menendez and this Florida ophthalmologist that he was friends with, uh, is a doctor named uh, Dr. Solomon Melgin, and uh, Menendez is alleged to have accepted uh, private and first-class commercial plane travel to Melgin's uh, lavish estate in the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, and Melgin, I guess, gave him about $750,000 worth of campaign funds. And in exchange, prosecutors allege that Menendez has pulled a lot of levers mm -hmm. on Melgin's behalf. Uh, the main one was intervening. He, he attempted to sort of intervene in a $9 million Medicare fraud scam that was centering on Melgin. Uh, he also helped, uh, again, this is all couched. So not innocuous stuff, though. Yeah, like it, this is couched in yeah. all alleged language, but he is alleged to have helped Melgin in this customs dispute with the Dominican government, and he even is alleged to have uh, arranged to acquire visas for many of Melgin's wow. uh, foreign girlfriends. Wow. So That's yes. all the stuff that you would... If you were writing the script for a yeah. politician in a corruption <laughs> trial, this is the kind of stuff you would put in yeah. it. Yeah, and the most interesting thing in our uh, one of our New Jersey reporters, Bill Weikert, wrote a great story that I would encourage everybody to read, and he will be on the scene uh, filing stories throughout the trial. Um, basically, it comes down to all the facts that I just laid out for you about the trips and even Menendez's you know, policy machinations. Mm -hmm. None of that is, by and large, none of that is really disputed. Hmm. These trips took place, and Menendez did these things, but what they're basically centering in on here, Menendez's team, is saying that the senator and the doctor are very merely just close friends, and that the conduct between the two is like doing things for your friend, and it does not amount to a quid pro quo, like... Well Flying him so, out to the Dominican was not a direct sort of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours for getting me out of this so Medicare let me get this straight. thing. If I make friends with a powerful senator, they can do all sorts of things for me then. In a and I can give them <laughs> gifts because they're my friend and I give my friends gifts. Again, Bill's story is really good. He, he asks a lot of different people this question you're asking me. And basically, in the most binary, broad sense... It is not illegal for a senator to do a nice thing for his friend, like just taking that. But that's taking them at face value. Mm -hmm. Right. But as we know, in many different contexts, you know, trial work is about telling a story. And right. I think it's fair to say, and Bill's story bears this out, that trying to convince a jury that these two sort of silos of activity, right. be them, you know, payments uh, or f flights and lavish resort stays are not connected with this other silo of activity about, you know, favorable government action. So which one of you is going to be a future state senator just in case I need something later? Uh, I mean, I've again, I fit right. You know, I, I guess we all I guess we both do in terms of states, you know, that have sort of a problematic history. Sure. Of, uh, sure. You've got Blagojevich. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens with Chris Christie. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, so anyway, so the trial got underway. 
And we've already seen a little, uh, a lot of interesting stuff. They've both sides are making the case that I'm making to you right now. The prosecutor started by saying, like, this is, uh, you know, Menendez was Melgen's, you know, own personal U.S. senator. And, like, this is what bribery looks like. And, uh, you know, the defense is saying what I said. It's like, you know, it's not illegal to help your friends and, you know, things like that. Um, there are, uh, have been a couple of interesting exchanges uh, earlier in the uh, in the run up to trial. Menendez's team had asked for the trial schedule to be amended uh, in such a way that he could miss certain days so he could go vote. Uh-huh. The judge declined that, and he and in declining, he he wrote in his opinion saying that the defense team only included that in an attempt to like remind the jury that, yes, the defendant is this very important person. Sure. Well, it's like, you know, my, the, the defendant can't be there that day because they have to spend the day giving to the needy. Like, <laughs> <you know. laughs> this is a very important person. Right. And Menendez's lawyer said, you know, judge, I take issue with with uh, what you're with the way with what you're suggesting there. And there was some crosstalk. And then the judge kind of interrupted and said, if you would shut up for a moment, if you don't mind, <laughs> I said what I said to underscore what I consider the lack of merits to this motion. Yeah, it sounds oh, like my home state. Man. Yeah. So we've gotten off to an this one's going to be Shut wild. Shut up and let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> Jersey proud, guys. Yeah, Jersey proud. And, you know, it's a jury trial, and the, so the judge isn't the decision maker there. But um, uh, like I say, keep tuned to our coverage. Bill has written a couple of great stories already, and I'm sure there's more to come. Thanks, cool. Alex, for bringing that one. Yep. The Trump administration announced Tuesday that it's ending a deportation protection program for young unauthorized immigrants, known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It's also called DACA. The announcement was quickly followed by questions about whether Congress will pass legislation to help these young immigrants, and 15 states have sued the Trump administration in an effort to save DACA. Senior immigration reporter Alyssa Wickham is with us today to unpack all the DACA action from the week and tell us what we can expect moving forward. Welcome, Alyssa. Hello. So... DACA has been in the news a lot, but I don't think everyone really knows what the program is. Can you just right up top set us up with what DACA is? Absolutely. So DACA is a program that provides deportation protection and work permits to young immigrants who came to the United States as children. Um, They were often brought by their parents and have lived in the United States pretty much their whole lives. Some of them don't remember the country they came from. Many think of themselves as American. So um, yeah, I think I read a statistic that um, the average age of a DACA recipient when they came to the U.S. was about six. Yes, exactly. And I think most of them are in their 20s at this point or a significant Mm -hmm. amount of them. Um, And so the program was rolled out under Obama in 2012. um, And it was an executive action because Congress had not gotten its act together, if you can believe it, and had not (laughs) passed what's uh, commonly called the DREAM Act, Mm -hmm. um, which in some form or another provides legal status to these young folks who came to the country as kids. Um, So there are a lot of requirements for DACA. I won't run through them all, but basically you had to come before you were 16. Um, You have to be in school or graduated or be a veteran. And uh, you can't have felony convictions. And so what protections, what does it confer to a recipient? It basically just says, we will not deport you uh, for a period of two years. So it's Mm -hmm. only good for two years. That's not a lot of time. People have to renew it a lot. Um, But it's a deferred deportation 
you know, assurance, yeah. essentially. And they got work permits. So they, they could work, work while they were here. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, but the Trump administration hated it. Yes. Well, definitely some people in the Trump administration. We have Jeff Sessions now, the mm -hmm. attorney general. He's a known immigration hawk. And uh, Trump, you know, one of his campaign promises was to end DACA, but he didn't, you know, for this period of several months, um, much to the dismay of many restrictionist groups. So what did, he, what did he do this week? I mean, DACA was all over the news, but sort of walk us through what exactly, what action he took this week. Yeah, so rather than immediately canceling everybody's DACA status and ending the program that way, they chose to phase it out over a period of a couple years. So essentially what that means is that people who have DACA status right now are able to keep it along with their work permits mm -hmm. until it expires of its own volition. Um, a select group of folks will be able to apply for renewals, but the deadline for that is October 5th. And not everyone whose DACA is going to be expiring, you know, in the, up to 2019 is going to be able to apply for these renewals. It's only people whose DACA ends March 5th. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the six-month deadline that you've been hearing about, um, which is a little misleading in a way because really, you know, the, the deadline for these dreamers is October 5th that mm -hmm. they have to file for renewal. Um, and even then, not everybody is going to be able to file for renewal. Folks whose expiration date is after March 5th can't do it at all. And you already mentioned that Trump was very vocal uh, as far as not being a fan of this program on the campaign trail. And it kind of seemed, and you said some people were upset that he didn't act a little more quickly. Mm -hmm. We're now, you know, over eight months into his term and this action has been taken what got the ball rolling here? I mean, what sort of lit the fire to, uh, you know, have him strike the pen in this way? Texas. Yeah. Uh, yes. It's, <laughs> yeah. It always comes back to Texas. No. So um, essentially, Texas and nine other states sent a letter to the Trump administration saying, hey, if you do not phase out DACA or announce a phase out to DACA by uh, September 5th, we're going to sue you, essentially. Um, and that was a, a deadline that gave Trump, you know, something to work with in terms of having to make a decision on this program. And even Sarah Sanders, um, the White House press secretary, said that Trump was still wrestling with this decision over the weekend. Um, so coming out of Labor Day weekend, he was still kind of grappling with it. Uh, so yeah, really, yeah. He basically states. either had to take this action and decide to phase it out or end it in some way, or they were going to sue. And then there would be the Department of Justice having to defend a program that may be Sessions or Trump right. didn't really want to. Right. Like, I have a hard time imagining Jeff Sessions defending DACA in court. Yeah, me too. Um, the other... Well, especially they've, they've walked back Obama positions in the context of other Supreme Court cases as well. So, you can, I mean, things have gone to the Supreme Court, yeah. so you can see yeah. how that would go. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. And there was talk of or speculation over whether um, they would just choose not to defend the program. So Texas mm -hmm. could sue. They would choose not to defend it. And, you know... Sarah Sanders was talking about how, well, they really framed the end of the program as having limited choices because they said that there was a good chance that the court in Texas would strike down DACA. Mm -hmm. And that's not without merit. I mean, who knows what would have happened if this case went forward. But um, the judge overseeing that case did put a halt on DAPA, which was a very similar program that would have covered parents. So maybe he would have halted DACA, too. It's hard to tell. Yeah. So Trump has talked about, you know, this is a thing that we want Congress to do, that this mm -hmm. is, you know, it's not on us. We shouldn't be doing this through executive order. Are I mean, it's hard to... to handicap what Congress is going to do. But I mean, do we do we see Congress taking action here and, and, and doing something to fix this the situation? 
It's tough. So the DREAM Act has not been passed in well over a decade, mm-hmm. and you are now asking a historically divided Congress to come to an agreement on a very volatile issue, immigration. So could and, it seems, yeah. though, and even though even volatile, though, back when the DREAM Act was originally proposed and, and had a pretty solid shot in uh, I think it was about 2010 mm-hmm. was when it had a really yeah. good chance. I was actually covering immigration mm-hmm. back then and was so psyched that, oh, maybe this will get fixed and I'll write all these great stories about this new program. But it fell apart. I mean, yeah. immigration things are notoriously tricky in but Congress. This, this feels like there was some pushback even from from the right on when when trump rolled this back right certainly more moderate republicans um gave pushback and people you know who you would expect to be in favor Mm -hmm. of of comprehensive immigration reform but you know there are a lot of more hard-leaning republicans in congress and uh mitch mcconnell also when he released his agenda items for september didn't make any mention of immigration um Mm -hmm. and when this issue has come up you know paul ryan was giving an interview with the new york times i believe today and they asked him about what to do with the dreamers if he would bring a dream bill to the floor and he hedged on that and said he wanted a consensus plan so it seems to be that they want some sort of more comprehensive immigration reform what that would probably mean is more border security and enforcement measures and of course the more stuff you load on to an immigration bill uh, the harder it is often right. to get it to pass. That pesky grand bargain thing, which we hear yes. about in so many contexts. Yes. So we talked about <laughs> how the threat of a lawsuit gave rise to this administrative action. And now we have new, an actual lawsuit over mm-hmm. the uh, pending DACA removal. Can you tell us about the new suit that was filed and what the uh, arguments are there broadly? Yes. So 15 states and D.C. got together and they filed a federal lawsuit in New York uh, seeking to stop the Trump administration from rolling back DACA. Um, The claims are interesting. They've got a couple of constitutional claims and a couple of administrative process claims. Mm -hmm. Um, The constitutional claims are really that rescinding DACA uh, is based on a discriminatory motive. Uh, The complaint talks a lot about how a lot of DACA recipients are from Mexico. Trump has said things that are, you know, anti-Latino. So, Alyssa, this sounds really familiar with all our travel ban conversations (laughs) we've had. It does sound familiar. These are a lot of the same arguments in that if um, our longtime listeners, you were on the show before, Mm -hmm. we talked about the travel ban against people from certain Muslim-majority countries, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the arguments in those lawsuits are the same. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. from the experts who I have spoken to today. Yeah, I was going to ask if you have like an early diagnosis on the likelihood of success or failure. Yeah, here. it seems, especially on those discrimination, you know, type claims, it might be a little bit hard for the states just because Trump's statements are not as explicit in terms of. So in the travel ban, there's a lot of um, explicit statements that he said wanting to yeah. ban Muslims. He right? called it a Muslim ban. Right, right, right. right. So it's right. not a big leap to go from that to a ban on people from Muslim countries um, with DACA and Dreamers, though, Trump has actually said things that are pretty nice um, or wanting to deal with them with heart, expressing sympathy for them, even though he eventually, you know, pulled this rug out from under them. But mm-hmm. uh, his statements were a bit nicer. And there was not in terms of like the quote unquote anti-Latino statements, um, they weren't specific to DACA. So it, it might be tougher for them to show yeah. discriminatory intent and animus here. And I would imagine on the administrative uh, front, I mean, you're you're dealing with an executive action that was undone by another executive action. I would right. imagine that that sort of due process claims 
enter into murky territory there. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I'm sure we're going to be seeing that argument made in response by the Trump administration. This was an executive action that was rolled out. Why can't we just pull it back Mm -hmm. as an executive action? Um, There, the states are sort of arguing that, you know, well, taking all these benefits away from people sort of rises to the level of a substantive rule of Mm -hmm. sorts. And so, you know, you really should have done it through rulemaking, that sort of thing. Um, It's it's tough. And it, it kind of juts against the argument that the Obama administration made they were always very clear that this was temporary, this was discretionary, discretionary excuse me, um, because they didn't want to be accused of making a law outside of Congress, essentially. Right. So they tried to right. paint it as very temporary. So we've done a, you've done a great job for us laying out what all has happened to now. And we've got sort of this lawsuit going in Congress. What are the key things that we should all be watching for? over the next six months while we have this window? Yeah, uh, obviously watch Congress to see what gets proposed. Um, there was talk of a more conservative DREAM Act being proposed a week or so ago. I haven't seen that yet, but that might be coming out. Which would be what, like tighter eligibility requirements? Yeah, and stuff? something like that. It, the details were quite fuzzy, to tell you the truth. Um, but definitely Democrats will be pushing for you know the traditional DREAM Act to um, give some sort of legal status to all of these young undocumented immigrants. Uh It will be interesting to see if any sort of consensus is formed on that. Also, yes, some top Democratic leaders um, warned on Wednesday that they would try to force a vote on DREAM Act legislation by sort of appending it onto other bills that Republicans have to pass. These are the the, the, the must pass, the the, the debt ceiling Mm -hmm. and budget stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And what about in the lawsuits? What are we expecting next there? Oh, yeah. Okay. So with the lawsuits, It'll be the normal litigation process, yeah. <laughs> which can be kind of long and messy. And uh, there's also been talk that California may bring some sort of separate action there. So there could be something going on. New York, California. Um, and then in an ongoing action that dealt with another young dreamer that, you know, isn't going to be brought by states or anything, they may amend that to challenge the DACA rescission as well. So there could be several lawsuits going on at the same time. Um, And, you know, if a judge decides to grant an injunction, then it would halt the rollback. I don't know. Several lawsuits going on at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) It's the story of the Trump administration. Yeah, it's also the story of Alyssa's beat. She and I will be very busy uh, dealing with all of this. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it to us, Alyssa. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and we're going to dive into some classic literature today. Bill, can you tell us what case we have here? We're just going to have a discussion group about John Steinbeck books this sounds for like a little while. Second, sound? second book club in a row for yeah. us. After the Posner book, and now we got some Steinbeck <laughs> right. from all over. Yeah. So John Steinbeck's stepdaughter won a $13 million uh, award this week in federal court after a jury found that uh, a rival heir to Steinbeck's estate had sabotaged deals that that the stepdaughter had set up to bring some of his most famous books uh, to the screen. Okay. I got to tell you, I'm not uh, really upset with the person that sabotaged because I hated The Grapes of Wrath. I really don't need to see another Grapes of Wrath movie. Hot literary takes. I know. Yeah. I love it. Um, Throwing it down, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So there were, you know, there were these. Yeah, walk us through the steps here. Steinbeck's third and final wife, Elaine, uh, inherited the rights to most of his IP, at least the IP at issue here, um, which is the the rights to The Grapes of Wrath and East of Eden, arguably his two most famous books. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 
that passed along to her daughter, who was Steinbeck's stepdaughter, when she passed away. So now this woman, Waverly Scott Kafka, owns the rights to those books. Okay. So Kafka went to court in 2014, claiming that the author's son, Tom Steinbeck, and his wife, Gail Knight Steinbeck, had lied or misrepresented that they had a stake uh, or a bigger stake in in those rights to interfere with deals that Kafka was setting up to bring both Crepes of Wrath and East of Eden to to the screen. Okay. One was, uh, it was set up by DreamWorks. It was going to have Steven Spielberg direct and Daniel Day-Lewis star in Grapes of Wrath. So I was gonna not do a, a small... Da- I, I was going to do a Daniel Day-Lewis impression to, from some Grapes of Wrath line. Then I realized he does a different voice in every movie. So yeah, he I can't does. Really it's do true. It. Anyway. I ahead. drink your dust bowl, there Eli. I drink it up. <laughs> well, he found a way. There you go. Um... <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, there was an East of Eden uh, project with Universal that Jennifer Lawrence was supposed to be in. So n- n- pretty big movies yeah. that were planned. Um, neither is still in the works. So what exactly did they do to scuttle these deals? Right. So Kafka claims, uh, the stepdaughter claims that the rival heirs contacted the studios that she was working on these deals with and, and you know, represented that, that they had to clear the rights oh. with her in addition to what they had already done with, with Kafka. That, you know, you talk to this person, but guess what? If you want to make this movie, you also have to pay me off to get it done. So with, with Grapes of Wrath, that ended up with DreamWorks cutting this side deal, allegedly, with, with um, the other heirs, paying them some money. The argument was that cut down on the money that 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 would have gone to Kafka. With everybody's got to get down that sweet Steinbeck coin. That I Steinbeck mean, that cash. A lot, of, a lot, a lot, a lot of sucklers. Stein, at the Steinbeck teat. Steinbucks, if you will. Steinbucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, with Universal, it was even worse. Allegedly, that that the studio just walked away from the project, saying they didn't want to be involved oh, wow. in this sort okay. of like crossfire between heirs. It just wasn't worth it for them. They hadn't sunk much money into it already. Just. East of Eden is not valuable enough to us to, to get, <laughs> right. in the, get in the middle of this. Yeah. We'll let it settle in the courts before we do anything. So what happened here with the – so the jury yeah, – Yeah, so Kavika sued them saying that they had interfered with her contracts and all this stuff. Um, after a week-long trial that um, I think wrapped up on Monday, the jurors sided with Kavika, awarding her $5.25 million in compensatory damages and $7.9 million in punitive damages. Nice. Um, so – Gail Steinbeck, so the the Tom Steinbeck, who was the heir who allegedly interfered with these deals, he passed away last year. So now it's only his wife as a defendant in the case. She argued throughout the trial that that you know movies fall apart for all sorts mm-hmm. of reasons, and that she was not responsible here, and that even if you could, it would it would be impossible to attribute how much money was lost and all these sorts of things. That it was very just speculative. I think they referred to it as a case of fiction. So she is going to bring that argument to the Ninth Circuit. She's oh, already wow. said okay, she's so going to appeal the going. case. So this will keep going. And apparently they've been fighting for years over other stuff. <laughs> so it's uh, those Stein bucks keep, uh, keep, keep keeping people in court. Well, you, so. you know, to, to paraphrase from your favorite book, Amber, whenever there's a rights agreement to violate, I'll be there. Wherever there's a Hollywood studio to meddle with, I'll be there. <laughs> this is classic. No? Grace of Wrath. Come on. All right. No, I, yeah. okay. I get right. it. We got I just it. think it's yeah. funny. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to stand Well, they can't all be winners. That's fine. I yeah. hope that uh, these movies never get made because this sounds like Oscar bait, and I watch every Damn. Best Picture nominee every year, <laughs> yeah. and I would be stuck watching these watch Daniel Day-Lewis Grapes yeah. of Wrath movies. So yeah. I will watch this case for my own personal purposes. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for being with me today. That'll conclude our show. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thanks. And Bill. See you next week.
We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest, Alyssa Wickham. Contributing reporters this week include Michael McInerney, Andrew Strickler, Bill Weikert, and Daniel Siegel. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com backslash podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.